When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. their stripes on the fish stripes podcast channel talking all things about the miami marlins minor leagues i'm eli sussman this episode a very special guest jj cooper of baseball america i've been in correspondence with him for a while i've been subscribing to his stuff for several years now Uh, jj has been with ba for almost two decades and uh, very recently got the title change to editor-in-chief he and his staff provided extensive coverage uh, all things baseball, all levels of baseball, including all important contexts uh, about the Marlins, their prospects, how they compare to one another, how their farm system compares to the rest of baseball as a whole. Uh, there's so much ground to cover with JJ um, as we begin, wow, all of a sudden the final month of this 2021 minor league season. So we appreciate you coming on with us. Glad to be here. And man, isn't it crazy to say that this is the final month of the minor league season? It it always flies by. It does feel like though it's flown by more this year, but that's probably because we're so starved from it last year that to have it here means it's it, it, it's flown by. I feel like it'll take me an entire offseason to fully process that we thankfully have had minor league baseball back again this year. Yeah, this year, I guess you could say this about most organizations, but with the Marlins, it really has been a very mixed bag uh, in terms of individual players and the organization as a whole. Uh, so we're going to run through probably a handful of individual guys, but then tackle some big picture topics that I know you have some really well-developed ideas about and a lot of research put into. But on the player side, like one guy that really epitomizes being a mixed bag would have to be left-hander Jake Eater, uh, someone that fell 100 picks into the draft in 2020, all the way to the fourth round. Uh, and we're going to start with the good and then the bad. Uh, the good is just everything he did on the mounds before suffering an injury, uh, where I think at this moment on your BA top 100, he is pretty comfortably in the top 100. He's right around 67 overall. He had 12 strikeouts in his minor league debut, and he pretty much dominated from there. Despite the aggressive assignment to double A, he got selected to the Futures game. What are your general thoughts about how he performed on the mounds because he came from a big school in Vanderbilt. He wasn't under the radar in that standpoint, but it seems that he exceeded everybody's expectations when we actually got to see him pitch. Oh, I, great pick by the Marlins. Great job by him. I get to the bad coming up. If it hadn't been for that, if it hadn't been for the bad, I'm not sure that we wouldn't in the off season 
have flipped Meyer and Eater. We have gotten a lot of scouts who have seen, I mean, the great thing about them is, is they're on the mound, same team. So a lot of scouts who've seen both Eater and Meyer, and we weren't ready to at the midseason flip them, but I would say more often than not, scouts who saw both Eater and Meyer, and they know that Meyer, where Meyer went in last year's draft, they know where Eater went. But they say, if you look at these two players and a pro scout's job is to evaluate them, not based on reputation, but based on what they see. And they would say, I want Eater. He's the guy I want of these two. Not that I don't like both of them, but I probably more often than not, we've been hearing guys say, I like Eater more than Meyer. Um, he did come from Vandy. But the thing I would also say with coming from Vandy is, is we do see this happen. The... Good news, bad news of going to a pitching factory like Vanderbilt is, is that there's only one guy on that team who's going to be the Friday starter. There's only another who's going to be the Saturday. And often what you will end up seeing is, is you will see Vandy will often have pitchers taken, usually in the later, you know, not in the first round, second, but they'll have guys picked a little bit later on who are prominent guys coming out of high school but they just got buried a little bit because there's only so many innings to go around. I think when you look at Jake Eater, and again, he wasn't buried. It wasn't like he never pitched at Vandy, but I do think you could say very easily that that's the case with Eater. The advantage of pro ball is for one, they have more innings to spread around. And for two, they're going to give them to you no matter whether in, in case of their development guys, they'll give them to you, whether you're going to succeed or not, they're going to keep giving you the ball. Eater obviously ran with it. I do think if you go back, you mentioned there's a very aggressive assignment. We did not see other non-first-round picks sent straight to double A. Obviously, the Marlins saw from moment one, this guy's better than what you would think considering what draft round he went in. And he lived up to every bit of those expectations and really was, unfortunately, is now was, but really was, what a debut year. Eaters 2-2. And the set and the 2-2 offering is tipped but into the mid of Chavez. The kick and the 1-2 pitch. And Mitchell hacks it one up around his eyes and strikes out swinging. Right. So now we go to what people think now that he is set to undergo Tommy John surgery, uh, potentially in the coming days, regardless uh, at this point, you know, it ends his season this year and it's certainly going to keep him out all of the 2022 minor league season as well for a guy that was in, in college and even a tad bit old, I think for a college junior in his draft class. Um, how does that impact how you rank him as a top 100 prospect as a Marlins top 30 prospect um, because you've been in this game now for a while where even Tommy John surgery, maybe it doesn't mean exactly what it means now, what it used to, how, uh, how do you process that? And how do you like bake that into the equation of what the expectations are for him moving forward once he gets healthy? We do BA grades. We do, which is ceiling and then risk. What the ceiling for Jake Heater does not change with this. He still could be the guy he was pre elbow injury. The risk goes up, though. And when you say that, it's like, well, why does the risk go up? Well, for two, the great news is, is that Tommy John surgery now does have a quite a high success rate. It's not 100%, you know, by any means. But at the same time, it's if you look at different medical literature, different studies on it, I think we're looking at 85 to 
returning to form as they had before the surgery. And especially when you take a player of Eater's age, it's a little different if you're talking about if you're talking about a, a, a Tommy John, it's a second Tommy John at age 32. Maybe it's a little different story. But in his case, the prognosis that he will come all the way back is quite good. And I would say you're right. He's going to miss the rest of this year. He likely misses all of next year, although part of that is just the timing of when the injury happened. He would be, if you said you're going to put him on a 12-month cycle to return, you would then be saying, are we going to ramp you up so that you can pitch instructs or AFL? Because that's what you'd be talking about. You've seen it happen occasionally, but a lot of times what teams will say in that case is, no, what we're going to do is we're going to plan to have you 100% come February, come the start of spring training. That way you'll have, at that point, a 17, 16, 17-month recovery. That puts you in great shape for 20, it's hard to believe, but for 2023. So, but the thing about it is, is like you said, he went to double A really fast. He got in almost a full double A season before the injury. He got to pitch in the futures game. The good news is, again, there's not good news about having Tommy John, but he's already sped up his cycle compared to most players, most of the contemporaries of that, his draft class. So if he comes back and then they say, we're going to send you to triple A to start the 2023 season. Well, that's still a pretty fast mover for a, a 2020 draft pick. So I don't think it hurts him too much. He's, I don't think it's going to knock him out of our top 100 when we do this again. But all that to be said, it does mean I think that we'll probably have Max Meyer ahead of him in the offseason. And I really thought that we might end up flipping those two guys. Not that Meyer's had a bad year either, but just how good Eater has been this year. And again, how he's done it really has impressed people. Even we just started with Jake Eater, but literally any other player that you want JJ's yeah. thoughts on, go ahead before we get into the bigger picture stuff. So I'm going to stick in Pensacola because I think this is the most interesting roster by far in the entire organization. Stick with Vanderbilt as well. I think you know where I'm going with this. J.J. Blade, right? So number four overall pick in 2019 has a pretty good start considering the aggressive, you know, placement in high A. Um, I think he had like 107 weighted runs created plus in like 50 something games or maybe even at bats. I can't remember, but you know, they, they go right to high A with him after college misses all of 2020 has a good spring training. Looks really good in spring training. Madeline is very high on the guy comes in double A obviously hasn't had a great year. I know you guys have dropped him down the list a bunch and, and rightfully so, right. He, it's been a really tough year for him, but has he done enough? There's been flashes. There's been streaks. Has he done enough, do you think, where he gets another shot in 2022 to reconvince you guys that he's the guy he was coming out of Vanderbilt? Sure. I mean, again, you, you there are players who take a while, but at the same time, I don't have a way to describe this season that's not concerning because what mm -hmm. you said, it's an aggressive assignment, but there are a whole lot of players, uh, again, to just take an example, when you look at, okay, well, where's Riley Green now? Riley Green's in AAA. Right. Well, where did Riley Green come out of? Came out of high school. Okay, where's Bobby Witt? Bobby Witt's in high A. You know, we, you've got younger guys than him who are now uh, further up the, uh, the minor league ladder. And this season is concerning. Mm -hmm. His 2019 season, I would describe it as perfectly fine. 
But the concern yes. that came out of that was he didn't hit for a lot of impact, which again, for a guy coming out of Vanderbilt, like this is not a player for whom high A should be an overwhelming assignment. Admittedly, the Florida State League is not a fun place to hit. Never. Playing in the Florida State League in general is not particularly fun. You're not playing in front of a whole lot of fans and the humidity can be kind of wearing and all those things at the end of a long season. Okay, you give them a pass on that. 2020 is 2020. You know, it's it, it affected everybody. But to be sitting here at the end of the season, and I, I will put it this way, like, again, we kept in our midseason, I, I, if I remember correctly, we kept him ahead of Peyton Burdick. Peyton, I don't think that that's going to be the case when we do our offseason list. And when you say, okay, well, why is that? Well, Burdick – that, that, that team is fascinating, and I do want to dive into at some point the numbers to see, like, is there a, a batting average suppression that's coming that's going on? Because there's a lot of guys who are posting kind of low batting averages but solid OBPs, solid slugging percentages for that team. But that said, Bladé's, you know, Bladé's not providing the power generally as much as Burdick, as much as Conine, as much as other guys on that team. And again, this should have been the guy for whom you don't have a lot of explanations of, oh, well, he was, he's just not ready for that level. He needs to return to that level again. He was playing high-level SEC baseball for multiple years. And this should not, maybe this is unfair, but there is the back of the mind of like, okay, we, we have seen some other prominent Vandy outfielders who kind of, have gone to uh, to pro ball and, and had some troubles. I, I look at it right now at the end of this season, you would, I think it's fair to say there are more concerns about Blade than much more concerns than there were coming into the year. Doesn't mean he can't go out next year. I, I think that the off season is going to be very important for him mm. because we do see nowadays, if this was 20 years ago, you kind of say this probably is who he is. It was, it was really hard back then. Maybe you found a hitting guru who helped you kind of fix some of issues and all, but now you do see players to just give an example. I mentioned Bobby Witt jr. Okay. In 2019, two of, you know, two other Royals top prospects, MJ Melendez and Nick Prado both hit under 200 at high a both were terrible. Both. I mean, MJ Melendez had more strikeouts than his batting average. Like, Again, I, it's batting average, but still, it's really hard to have more strikeouts than what your batting average was at the end of the year. Here he is this year. He may end up, he's second in the minors in home runs. He's made it a AAA. You can see guys retool themselves more so nowadays, I think, than you used to. But I do think that Blade is going to have to kind of do some real self-examination look at it and say, okay, why is it not working for me this year? What is it that I'm getting consistently beat on? And how am I going to fix that? Because this is not a good year. I, I, don't, I mean, it's, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Is there any positives you can take away from it? Obviously, he's still, his discipline numbers look pretty good, but is there anything you look at it and you're like, okay, this is something to build on for next season? You said that like that. Normally, if you said uh, a top prospect like JJ Bladé is hitting under 200, 
you would start it by saying, okay, well, strikeouts are, are really right. the problem. And that's not, I hope, and again, we root for prospects to succeed. He has a 234 Babbitt this year. Yeah, that was now, now, I don't want to make minor league Babbitt, I don't think is just a function of variables of luck and all. I, I mean, you see it, we see it time and time again, especially at the lower levels of minors, but in the minors, there are guys who post high BABIPs and you say, why? It's because, well, they hit the ball hard. And by the way, defense in the minors isn't as good as the majors. So hitting the ball hard, even if you hit the ball hard at people, can result in higher BABIPs in, uh, in the minors especially. That said, one would think, okay, if, if 234 turned into 280 next year, well, all of a sudden we're talking about the difference between J.J. Bleday fighting with the Mendoza line and being a guy who's hitting 250. If he was hitting 250 this year, it still wouldn't be a great year. You'd say, okay, so 250, 340, 400, you go, we're kind of expecting more than that. But we wouldn't be talking about it as in, okay, that it's one of the worst years we're seeing of the 2019 first round class. Um, so it would be a better version of what we're talking about. But I do think you're going to have to see him figure out a way, keep the, again, the strikeout rate, the walk rate, those are the two things that are good, but just hit the ball more consistently with impact because that's what he has to do. I mean, again, that's, I don't care how good your defense is. If you're an outfielder, you have to hit the ball with some impact, especially in 2021. He was one of those guys where when I saw him on your midseason rankings, that one made me raise an eyebrow that you were a little low on him. The only one that made me really scratch my head was Jose Salas, the shortstop, 18 years old, who at the time was still playing in the complex league. And almost right after the midseason update, he got promoted to low A, where he's kind of holding his own. Uh, he has that big pedigree himself, um, where he was a $3 million player as an international signee. He's got a great pedigree as in a baseball family. And the production in the complex league, especially for his age, was pretty incredible. Excellent. Uh, if, if I do remember correctly, I think he was number 25 on your midseason list. If you look at uh, across the industry, I think just about everybody else would have him somewhere in the top 15, if not even higher. Uh, could you just explain what was holding you guys back from putting him higher at that point? I, I think one of it is, is that I would say that, again, I do like – it's funny. I, again, we got slammed by a lot of people on Twitter about where we ranked the, the, the Marlins as far as on our org talent rankings. I do like the Marlins depth. Like, again, I would say that Salas is, has a higher upside than a number of guys who are in the teens that said, most of those guys who are in the teens are a lot closer to the big leagues. I do think also it is a function of, there is a certain function. I do believe he will move up in our off season rankings when we did this, he's had a great FCL debut, got moved up. And again, I don't have any knock against him. He's holding his own at low A, which at his age is a very respectable. I'm not expecting him to slug 490, 500 at, high, at, at low A in that league at that age. But there's another function, which is we do this a little like and we ended up rolling him out in late July because we kind of got overwhelmed with everything that was going on, but we'd start this process in late June, early July. And we try to adjust it as kind of things are going along, 
but at the same time, the the teams that the, the list that get done earliest, and Marlins were one of those ones that got done earliest. At the point where these rankings were put together, Salas, I think, had like a week to two of uh, the FCL at that point. And so we had like early, really good early returns, but at the same time, it was something where we will have definitely more, you know, more, a, a bigger resume of his. You're right though. He had pedigree coming in, all that. But again, that, the other thing I'd say with that is, is like, I think what I like about this Marlins list the most is that we have guys like Burdick, like Devers, like Conine, in this kind of this mid range of it, that's something that a lot of teams don't have. That's, that's the thing that I do love about this Marlins list is I do think that there is a lot more depth now than there used to be. The thing that probably I would say big picture that concerns me is, is I just don't know. I wish there were a couple more close to the majors bats to go with the arms. Like we have some arms, but we have arms that have in some cases, some injury issues to kind of work through. And then we've got bats that I, I love some of the young ones. Again, I'm a Khalil Watson guy. And the fact that the Marlins got Khalil Watson where they did, it, it actually makes sense when you say it's one of those things where I think, okay, when you understand the logic of the MLB draft, the Marlins had money to spend. Other teams did not. It makes sense from that standpoint. That said, if you had told me on draft day, the start of draft day, that Khalil Watson would be a Marlin, I would have never probably believe that but i do like watson i like mac i just wish there were a couple more again closer to the big league bats who i felt really confident about that's the 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 big picture like okay if i have a hesitation it's that i wish i had that the flip side of it is i think the depth of this organization is really good so give us a guy like down lower in the lower levels. You're really high on some of the guys down there. And the hitting numbers have been pretty good uh, towards the end of the season at a place like Jupiter, the Florida Complex League, even Beloit's getting a little better. Give us a guy that some people might not be focusing on that you are really high on down in this Marlins system. I'm fascinated. So I'll ask you guys, because you guys watch mm-hmm. the Marlins on a daily basis more than I do. What is your initial impression of Brian De La Cruz? Oh, we love oh, him, man. We, we adore yeah, we him. love him. He's, he's a guy that we really did not know much about prior to the trade. Um, of course, if you look at his numbers now, he's hitting 350. That's what most people think about. But just watching him, actually, what stands out most is his defense at all three mm-hmm. outfield spots, especially in right. He's really good. In his very first Marlins game, it was so he's been a gem. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure Ethan we, feels kind of the same way. Yeah, we have a we have a guy on staff who also does a lot of Astros stuff, and so he knew about De La Cruz. And when he came over, he was like, "I don't think this guy can, you know, really stick in center field." Wasn't like super high on his defense, and since he came over, he has been outstanding defensively. Uh, I was at his first game, you know, the game on the actual trade deadline, and he ran a ball down in right center. That and I was like, "Wow, like this kid can scoot out there." And he hasn't disappointed since. Obviously, a you know a BABIP of up like near 500 is is not going to be sustainable. Probably come back a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it'll probably come down to earth a little bit. But in the same, you know, at the same time, he just hits. He just puts the ball in play. Um, his strikeout numbers. I, I like thought he was kind of a free swinger and a strikeout guy, but it's not astronomical the strikeout numbers. You know, and the Marlins. It seems like every time a guy comes up, you know, last year it was Jesus and Lewin and Jazz and some of these other guys that have come up, Isan, for instance, obviously. 
you know, they strike out over 30% nearly every time. And Jesus isn't doing that right now. And De La Cruz isn't doing that right now either. So I think he's been really impressive. Um, you know, there's a lot of like starter versus fourth outfielder talk that I haven't made up my mind on yet, but it's been everything they could ask for so far. For sure. I, that's why I'm kind of fascinated with him because we talked about it with Blade, right? Like he's going to need to take a step forward. I don't think there's a question looking back at my notes. Cause I, again, I've done Ast- our Astros list on and off over the years and I've got notes on De La Cruz going back to like 17, but this wasn't the guy like this isn't, he, he is a guy who, if you said where he was in 2019 going into the pandemic, I felt like, okay, he's fine. Like that doesn't get anyone excited this year. You had him go to triple a and you you worry like okay how much of that is the triple a ball is livelier than the double a ball he's playing you know in triple a west which is what used to be the pcl so that all helps but he's a better player i mean he is a guy who clearly has gotten significantly better and the tough thing that we're all dealing with y'all are dealing with it we're dealing with it everyone in this is dealing with it teams are dealing with it is okay, how much do you weight what you're seeing now versus, in Brian De La Cruz's case, we literally have a resume that goes back to 2014. This guy was effectively, I love the Rule 5 draft, this guy was free talent who was available, you know, for a long time. And no, not just he wasn't picked, it wasn't like, if you looked at last year's Rule 5 draft, it was like, how did Brian De La Cruz not get picked? He was just a guy, uh, I'm one of the guys who's like, okay, you know, whatever. And look at him now, and you do say, okay, this is a player who, I mean, like you said, it's now fourth outfielder versus starter, not does he fit on a team. 3-2. And this one is hit out to left field. This is the right side. Kudos, because again, no one was saying it coming into this year, oh, I think that Brian De La Cruz might be a starter, or but I think at worst, he's a fourth outfitter. He wasn't a fourth outfitter. If you said, I think he's a fifth outfitter, it would have been, when you really like Brian De La Cruz. So I'm kind of fascinated to see how this goes the rest of the year, but I do agree with you. I think that he keeps exceeding. The reports I had were, Fringe average defense and center, good in the corners. He seems like he's better than that, too. We're here with J.J. Cooper from Baseball America, and we'll finish up on this with some big-picture talk with you, uh, touching on these players already. Um, with De La Cruz, he's a guy, obviously, that was not in the organization until a month ago. They acquired him, and he just kept on hitting as he did in AAA. Uh, we talked about Blade as being someone who's disappointing, a guy that was drafted and developed by the organization. And you mentioned it before, how this organization, there's a lot of, there's kind of a dearth of actual impact bats that seem close to being ready for the majors. Uh, a, 
a concern that a lot of people have in the Marlins community is if there's something wrong with the team's player development, because you know how strong they are on the pitching side. They might be as good at, at anybody as like maximizing the abilities and improving the players that they get, such as Jake Eater, uh, just as one example, and all the guys that are breaking through to the majors this year. There are so many success stories on the development side, on the pitching side, and it's almost the opposite on the hitting side uh, in your vast amount of experience, you know, covering MLB farm systems. Is, is this something that's just cyclical? Is this something that historically you just need to shake things up staff wise that there's just some disconnect between the way that this organization develops pitchers, but struggles just as much on the offensive side. What, what is the solution to that? That is a complex question and one that, so, okay. It's one that often is difficult to have an easy answer for because let's take Blade, right? Okay. Let's assume it never comes together for Blade. Let's just assume that for a moment. Is that a scouting issue? Because is that that the scouting that the amateur scouting department misevaluated the player? Now I'll say this. If they did, this isn't that they went, they didn't go off the board when they said we're taking JJ Blade. JJ Blade was not like a shock pick where they took him. But that said, was it a misevaluation where you know what, in hindsight, we should have seen these things in his swing, whatever it was, approach, whatever it was. Maybe he doesn't hit the ball as hard as we thought. Take your pick. Or is it a development issue where the scouting department provided this potential impact bat and in whatever way the player development side was not able to maximize his potential? Well, that's one of those that I would say that right now, if you worked in the Marlins organization and had access to every report on Blade from before he was drafted to now, I don't think it'd be easy to provide an easy answer because I don't even think if you said, if you pumped JJ Blade full of truth serum at this moment, that he would know the answer to, because if he did, he'd be say, okay, this is what I'm going to solve. Like, clearly, when they asked me to do this, I shouldn't have done that, whatever it is. But the funny thing about this is, is like, okay, we can also flip this. If we went back, again, obviously, there's been a lot of turnover in this organization. But if we just went back a few years ago, we could have said it kind of the other way around in some ways, which would have been, hey, this is a team. Why is it that they keep drafting pitchers who back up and get hurt? You know, we, we had a, a time where I remember watching Tyler Kolek and, and getting all excited in low A, like, hey, here, I'm going to see 100. To, that's not 100. That's 91. 91? 92? You know, and it was like, what happened here? And, and that was, again, that's a while ago now because I'm old, but that wasn't that many years ago where it seemed like, oh, this team really struggles to develop pitchers. And, and, and not long after that, Braxton Garrett got hurt. And, you know, it just seemed like, oh, this team drafts press prep pitchers, but they can't develop them. Now Trevor Rogers says, hey, you know, we're really good at this. I mean, and so it does seem like, again, you, so that would seem to make the argument cyclical, but I don't think it necessarily does make the argument cyclical. It does make the argument that 
there's been a, a regime change with the Marlins and credit to the Marlins. They've done a really good job of developing these pitchers. Now, right now, if you look at it, it would be hard to say, here are the examples. Jesus Sanchez would maybe become, he could become an example of a guy who's like, no, 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 look, we can develop hitters because Jesus Sanchez, yes, I know he was originally a Ray, but when the Marlins acquired him, in no way a finished product, in no way, you know, if you acquire Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and he goes out and hit, you probably can't take credit for that. The dude was hitting when he was 12. You just happened to, you know, yes, the great scouting, but that's the development is he's always been great. Wander Franco's always been great. Jesus Sanchez was a flawed hitter. He was a player who the highs were very high and the lows were very low. And it does, I've, I've watched more um, MILB TV of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of that club than I, of the triple like of Jacksonville than I, that I probably should this year, but I, he looks like a better hitter to me this year. When I watch him doesn't mean he's not going to strike out. It doesn't mean that it's a little, not a little bit of all or nothing, but that's a guy who may be give proof to, okay, you know, this is, this is an organization that is able to develop hitters. I do think there's a scouting and development component to it, though, because some of the players also, you know, we could talk about the Will Banfields and all of the world. Yeah. Well, but that was kind of when you acquired, when you draft him, you kind of know that's, that's the risk that you're talking about in that situation. So there's been some players where I would say, okay, J.J. Bladet has not developed like it was expected. And then there's been other players where you say, you look at that, you know, it was Will Banfield, Connor Scott, that draft, and it hasn't really paid off a whole lot yet. But that said, some of that was, okay, you knew you were taking risk and that doesn't always work, you know? And so Banfield was known more as, you know, for his defense at the time than he was for his bat. And so I, I don't have an easy answer for it, but that said, it is something obviously worth kind of monitoring is they need to have, some hitting success stories. The other one I'd say though, is, is, uh, you know, it's, it's fair to throw jazz Chisholm in that, you know, boat a little bit too. Again, that's not a player who was a 100%, you know, perfect hitter when acquired and he has gotten better. So I, I can think of at least some examples of players who have improved in the Marlins hitting development. There's like three guys I want to ask you about even, I mean, a million guys I want to ask you about in the system, of course, because I find it so interesting and there's so much depth, but I think I'm going to group a few guys here and just you take your pick. Burdick, Conine, Meisner. So I'm a Burdick guy. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was a Burdick guy coming out of the draft. I thought that that was a really good pick. I'm glad to see that he's basically turning out to kind of be the guy that he had the potential to be. I, again, these are, it's, it's, it's one of those things where when you take a guy like Burdick, you don't expect that you're going to get, that he's going to be that five tool player who hits for high average, gets on base and hits for power. But I do think that he's going to get on base and hit for power mm -hmm. at a solid clip. And that's enough. That's enough to be a useful player. 15 appearances in the minors. Now the pitch hammered out to left. That is deep and that ball is gone. Number 20 for Peyton Burdick. He has tied the Blue Wahoos franchise record for most dingers in a season.
it may be unfair of me that I still remain a little bit more skeptical on Conine, even though I want to fully and utterly acknowledge it's a great year. Yeah. Like it's a weird year. It's a weird, great year. Like, okay, we talk all or nothing. He's going to win the minor league home run ground. Like, mm-hmm. and he may do it. Like if he has a good final month, he may do it with 40. He could flirt with 40 homers. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you say that 40 homers isn't a great year? And then you say, well, okay, so what do you hit for average when he did that? It's like, you don't want to talk about that part. Let's, let's leave that part out. And I, 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 I don't think that that approach, I think he's going to have to make improvements for that approach to play in the majors. That said, put him in AAA next year to start the year or soon thereafter, give him the AAA ball and just watch how many homers he's going to hit with that. But again, I'm, I am a little skeptical because of that. I'm not so my, again, if you said, which of these guys do I feel most confident about it's Burdick. I, I, to me, Mm -hmm. he's the guy who has a chance to be a more well-rounded player out of all these Meisner. I Meisner's a weird one. Like Meisner, like going back, Going back, like, I, I can't think of a player who lost more money in the draft. <laughs> like, if if the pandemic year had happened a year earlier, Cameron Meisner would probably have made an additional $2 million because, like, he had that great first month in 2019, and then he rolled into conference play, and it did not go nearly as well, which, again, we obviously didn't have conference play in 2020. What he's done so far, I kind of look at it and go, okay, it's not bad. You know, it's not great. Um, it gives me hope because, again, there are tools there. I mean, there are legitimate tools there. It's always going to be do the skills catch up to the tools. I would say right now the answer is not yet, you know, but it's a different story. To me, like I look at it and it's like, okay, you have players who you say, okay, their skill level is already here, but their tools are going to limit them. And then you have other players and you say their tools are here, but their lack of baseball skills, that ability to turn those tools into actual production has to catch up. And then there's the guys, you know, again, we talked about like, then there are the, the wanders and all who you're like, they have skills, they have tools, they have it all. I'd rather have the guys who have tools and you want to mix, but I, I feel more optimistic about a guy like a Cameron Meisner, who I do feel like has the tools to be a productive big leaguer. It's just going to take a lot of development work. Um, and I do think there's still a lot of development work kind of to come I, again, but there are some secondary skills there too. He's going to draw some walks. I want to see more power, but at the same time, it's not like he's not hitting for any power. I, I just wish, I wish he was a little bit more like Peyton Burdick. Though. Like again, Burdick, I feel like is, the, the slightly better version. Eli is a huge verdict guy as well. So I, I yes, yes, very now much. I'll ask so. you, Eli. Verdict versus Blade. Which do you prefer? Uh, for the moment, I'm holding out on Blade, uh being just the promise of him being a, a more complete offensive player if he is the guy that he was coming into pro ball. Um, but it's been a long season. And the thing is, yeah. both those guys have been fully healthy thank God. So they've gotten so many reps and the divide between them is pretty significant over all those reps. 
Um, I, I know you mentioned how, what, how BA is viewing that, and I, I might come around to that once I really evaluate it once the season ends, but it's been a, yeah, it's been a big sample, and it's really not been a contest that Burdick is the one that's showing more. And uh, the stats back it up, but, but just by watching him, there are things that Burdick does that are hard to describe that are just uh, really make him a favorite of a lot of people, myself included. But uh, we have that is a, a fascinating team. Yeah. That, that is a, yeah. I was watching not long ago. Yeah. Um, I, I was watching Brendan McKay make a rehab start. Uh, mm-hmm. And I remember that game. They, they did, they, they did not treat him well. Um, they were, they treated him very poorly because it was like, that was the game where it was pretty much, if you were in that lineup and you didn't hit a homer against Brendan McKay, you went home disappointed because I want to say, Pretty much, I think it was. I think like all four. three of them did. I think Bladey, yep. Burdick, and Conine hit a home run that day. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say, though, that Burdick's was the one that I most like. That was the one that I was like, okay, that was a really impressive homer, too. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was majestic. Um, but again, that's a fun team. Again, and Jacksonville's been, you know, when, when Sanchez was there early in the year, Jacksonville's a fun team, or, or when Cabrera, and, you know, it is. This is an interesting organization to watch right now. Um, in the minor leagues, which it hasn't always been the case. So yeah, it's been, it's definitely more enjoyable now than it was a few years ago where there was a time where it was like, Ooh, not much to watch. I, you know, we, again, they used to be, you know, we used to see them a lot, obviously Greensboro because we were based not far from there. And there were a couple of years there of Greensboro where I was like, who I, I got to check to see who's coming in from the other opposing team, because there's not much to watch in this Greensboro team. Yeah, the name Tyler Kolick sent a chill down my spine when you said that. It reminded me of some much darker days in this organization. So, I remember, like, who was it? There was the, oh, there was the soft tossing, like, third rounder from California, like, not long after that also. And it was like, I'm, I just happened to let, you know, like, I was like, okay, if I see more 86 to 88, uh, you know, from this low A team, I, I, I will just frustrate me. But, you know, again, it has changed from that now. It has definitely changed from that. We have just a few minutes left with JJ Cooper here. And we wanted to get into something that I know you're very passionate about minor league housing. Um, and you had a very recent article, great timing that came out about this and the solution about this. Just for anybody that didn't read that article, he started it off with this really great metaphor about how absurd it is that the teams don't take responsibility for the players' expenses when it comes to that. If you could just share what that metaphor was about how, how this is so much different than any other employer-employee situation. Hey. It's funny, after I wrote that, I was talking to my brother who, and he mentioned, he's like, I thought that major league teams paid for the housing for minor league players. Like, so I didn't know that until I read that story. I'm like, okay, that's useful to remind me that things that I, I think are, are common knowledge, not necessarily common knowledge. But the, the metaphor was just laying out like, okay, imagine that you're in a job and you don't know where you'll be sent to work for a six month period but you find out the week before you're gonna supposed to be there. Okay, we're sending you to Beloit, uh, you know, and okay, go to find a place in Beloit, settle in, and that's where you're gonna work this year. And you'll work there until September. And you say, okay, uh, I'm going to Beloit. And so you go to Beloit, you find a place, you sign a lease, and 
you're doing really well in your job. And then two months later, they say to you, hey, we, 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 we really like what the work you're doing. You're doing so well, we're going to promote you. And we're promoting you to, okay, let's just say Pensacola, Florida. And so you go to Pensacola, Florida. Well, and you say, well, what about the lease I had in Beloit? They're like, no, that's your responsibility. We're moving you to Pensacola, but that lease in Beloit, that's, that's you, for you to deal with. So you go to Pensacola and again, you have to find somewhere to live. So you find somewhere to live there. And after you're there a month, they say, uh, sorry, I don't know why, but it's not really working out there. So now we're going to pick you up and move you again. And this time we're going to move you to San Bernardino, California. I'm not going to use the full Marlins organization here because Jupiter would not be the same, but we're going to move you across the country. It's like, okay. And so you move again and again, you're responsible for your housing. And by the way, you're making 500 or $600 a week and you're responsible for your housing. In pretty much any other, again, I've had people say to me, well, there are maybe a field here or there, but generally I would say that's not the way that corporate America generally works. I know that in what we do at Baseball America, if I ask someone to go cover spring training for us, and say, we're gonna keep you in Arizona for the month. We don't say, you just need to find a place. And by the way, the two weeks later, if we call you and say, hey, we need you to be in Florida. By the way, you need responsible for your place in Florida too. And it goes bigger than that though, because if you look at it also, these players also, there's no guarantee that they're even gonna be in, employed for six months. They're responsible for finding housing, but you could go to one of these places and a week later be told, hey, we're releasing you from your contract because of poor performance. But by the way, you're still responsible for your lease. I actually had a player, Todd Van Stiesel, who reached out to me and said, that's exactly what happened to me. I was signed by a team. I went, I signed a lease, which basically cost as much money for that first month of rent as the paycheck I got from the team. And then I was released the next week. And when I said, hey, you guys released me, will you take over you know, responsibility for this rent? There's least, they said no. And my point that I tried to make with all of this is, this is illogical to me. This is, the logic here is, I mean, just trying to look at it from, and attempting to look at it from a logical perspective. Each MLB team knows at every level, they're gonna have 35 to 40 rooms that they will need for the course of the season at low A, at high A, at double A, at triple A. Now, the names of the people, the actual people who will be filling those 35 to 40 rooms may change a dozen times over the course of the season, but it's still, the rosters are the rosters. You know that you're going to have that many players. And on top of that, now major league teams also know that they're going to be in these, they're going to have, they have long lasting relationships with these teams. The Marlins know that they're going to be in Beloit until 2030. They know that they're going to be in Jacksonville. They have signed 10 year professional development licenses. So logically to me, it makes much more sense, both for the welfare of the player, but also for the welfare of player development to say, because we've seen players and I've had players tell me, I lived in my car because of this, which, or 
temporarily I was in my car or I lived in the clubhouse. And we do know that rest is proper sleep is an important part of player development, of athletic development. And I can tell you confidently, I think you all know too, sleeping in your car is not the best sleep that you're going to get. It makes sense to say that MLB teams in 2021 should say, you know what? Housing during the season is a team responsibility. If we promote you from low A to high A, when you show up at, at high A, we say that player who moved out, you get his room. Here you go. We're moving you down a level. That player who moved up, who you just, who just replaced you on that roster, we gave you his room because again, you're going to need 35 rooms, you know, whether that's three bedroom apartments, four bedroom apartments, one bedroom apartments, extended stay hotel rooms, whatever it is, but every team knows they're going to need that. And teams have negotiating leverage to say, Hey, we want to sign a multi-year contract with you apartment complex, hotel, whatever it is. And by the way, we're a billion dollar corporate company, corporation, we're valued at a billion dollars or more. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to, you're never going to have to go to court to collect back rent on us. The flip side of that is also another story shared with me was Jose Ramirez of, of Cleveland Indians. When he got promoted to the big leagues in, was that 17? His name was the one on the lease at AAA. So he's gone, but again, other players, sub, you had to sublet it to fill it, right? They didn't pay rent for September. Whose credit did that ding? Jose Ramirez's. Because again, there's a lot of illegal subletting going on in the minors because that's what you need to do as people go up and down. It makes way more sense instead of some 20-year-old, 21, 23-year-old players credit being damaged because some ex-teammate of theirs didn't pay the rent. It makes way more sense to say, okay, these billion-dollar MLB teams will handle that. I know that was long-winded. I'm sorry. But, yes, I am. I, again, I just see a logic to that. Is the guess it, seems like, it seems like such a competitive advantage to have your guys. If the other team's guys are sleeping in their cars, but your guys are sleeping in a nice residence in or, you know, a nice Marriott or something, that's a huge competitive advantage for you. And, and like you talked about, it's a development. It just makes it's completely illogical and immoral as well to make your players, you know, the, the whole rite of passage thing. This is the minor league grind thing. I, I think all of that is just, you know, it's, it's so unnecessary. And, and I could not agree more with you that it's logical to rent out a holiday inn in Beloit and say, we need 35, 40 rooms. Here you go. You know, we can pay for it because we're a major league baseball organization. And I, again, a lot of this, I would describe the same way that I would describe when you say, why is spring training and extended spring for minor league players, not salary, you know, you don't, you, you collect your paycheck during the season. The answer would be because that's the way it's always been. Like when it comes to minor right. league housing, I, the, really the answer comes back to if you rewound the clock a hundred years ago, okay, yes, the minor league team was not responsible for housing because wherever you were, you were signing a contract with that minor league team for the course of the year. And in addition to that, a lot of times you might be like at the minor league level, often it was because you were from that area because the miners originally 
was an offshoot of Town Ball. Town Ball became more upscale, but you are signing with a minor league team, not a major league organization. And at that point, again, for these were hand-to-mouth organizations in a lot of ways. But on top of that, you were able to say, I'm going to be living here for the course of the year. Why? Because it wasn't, well, we need a shortstop in double A next week. Those, there was no, there were no affiliates. It was, I'm signing to try to help this club in Savannah, Georgia, or Appleton, Wisconsin, or whatever it was, win a title. And that's where I'm going to be all year. And then after the year, I'll figure out if I'm going to play again next year. It was, it was something very different. We've gotten from that to now a system where obviously team players contract with the major league club players are paid by the major league club, but we're still seeing artifacts of a system that was developed 125 years ago under entirely different circumstances that again, it's, I've heard of stories of the thousand dollar senior sign whose best attribute is that they can play anywhere and they're willing to do whatever for the team, right? Well, some of those players, the bad news for that is, is that that's the player who gets bounced all around the organization because they're the Swiss army knife to fill in wherever there's an injury. That should be a good thing. That should be like, okay, Hey, I got to play in triple a this year. It can be a bad thing right now though, because if you play at four different levels, well, there is no good answer for, and I should make, I should make clear the first couple of days that you are in, uh, you know, get promoted, your hotel's handled, but then it's like, okay, that's just to get your feet settled. And now you need to go find a place. If you're bouncing from somewhere, one, one spot every month, I, there is no easy answer other than, and I've, again, what we talked about, other than I'm going to live in the clubhouse because I don't know if I'm going to be here for long and I don't want to, or again, I'm going to live in the clubhouse. I'm going to see if one of my teammates will let me sleep on their floor. I have an air mattress. Uh, you know, I, I think if you said, I think it's fair to say minor league players are among the, uh, the world's experts in knowing what kind of air mattress you want, what pump does really well, all that kind of stuff, because that is the minor league life. And again, yeah, like you said, that's the minor league grind, which in 2021 does seem illogical because again, we know more now. We do know now that you see it at the major league level and all these sports, but it seems like the NBA is at the forefront of making sure that players get proper rest, even having, you know, and, but major league teams do it too, where they have nap rooms and all because of the idea that rest is proper rest is a performance enhancer, not a illegal, but a legal performance enhancer. And here we have a situation. Again, some of the things, I know everyone says that, you know, like there's a lot of thought that everything that happened with the major league reorganization of the minors was bad. There was something that was good about it, which is travel in a lot of cases did improve, which is helpful for these players because when you're traveling on a bus overnight, and especially under the old buses, it was hard to get good rest that has improved now with this, but they're still leaving this big un, undone part. And I should note though, the Astros are a team that has basically handled housing for all their minor league players this year. 
I believe the San Francisco Giants have handled housing at the A-ball level, which they have a team in San Jose. I can't imagine trying to find an apartment in San Jose on 500 a month. I, I think if you filled out the application and handed it in, like they just laugh at you. I mean, it would be like, we, we have a cardboard box. You're not qualified to have the, you know, to live in the cardboard box because the cost of housing out there is so, you know, so insanely high, but most teams do not do this right now. I do think that will change. I think that it will eventually change. But I do also think, again, just looking at it logically, it should change. Uh, Thank you so much to J.J. Cooper, Editor-in-Chief, Baseball America, giving us a full hour of his time. I mean, everybody out there, for if you don't already do it, please subscribe to Baseball America. Um, It's I've been doing it for years, and it's such an amazing value to get all that information about all aspects of baseball. And you can follow J.J. Cooper on Twitter at JJCoop36. Thank you so much, J.J. We hope to have you back in the future. Thank you, guys.